July 11, 2000. The Senate Judiciary Committee is holding a hearing on intellectual property, normally a pretty staid affair that draws the usual suspects like lobbyists and trade reps. And they're there, but so are some of the biggest names in music. Throngs of teenagers and 20-somethings line up early to get a glimpse of Metallica's heavy metal drummer Lars Ulrich, who, along with rapper Dr. Dre, have become the faces of the record industry's charge against Napster. Also, there's the Eagles' Don Henley and Alanis Morissette. This hearing is becoming not only a debate over copyright infringement, it's also a public airing of artists' grievances against both Napster and the labels. When Ulrich speaks... He takes direct aim at Napster. If you're not fortunate enough to own a computer, there's only one way to assemble a music collection, the equivalent of a Napster user, theft. Walk into a record store, grab what you want, and walk out. The difference is that the familiar phrase, files done, is now replaced by another familiar phrase, you're under arrest. In the other corner is singer Alanis Morissette, who tells senators because of the way labels structure contracts, Artists rarely see royalties beyond their initial advance. Napster, she argues, can change that. Free internet distribution allows the artist to aggregate an audience and create a direct relationship with that audience. This, in turn, allows that artist to generate compensation through other outlets, such as touring and merchandise. For the majority of artists, this amounts to making enough money to be in survival mode. When Napster CEO Hank Berry speaks... He says when users sample music, they buy CDs, and that's a boon for the labels. He has an unspoken political message, too. Millions of Napster users are of voting age. In conclusion, I'd say that we should not brand as thieves the 20 million Americans who enjoy the Napster service. Instead, we should let history be our guide. Americans love music, and every time a new technology makes it easier for listeners to discover, enjoy, and share music, the recording and music publishing industries benefit. And then there's something few could have seen coming. Senator Orrin Hatch, a Republican from Utah, thinks of himself as an undiscovered talent because, well, there's this. Hanukkah, oh Hanukkah, the festival of light. In Jerusalem, the oil burned bright. They lit the menorah in that holy place. What a Yeah, you heard that right. A Hanukkah song written by the Mormon senior senator from Utah. Hatch, who chairs this committee, figures his recordings could gain the most from a service like Napster. He sees what many smaller artists see in Napster, a platform that can get him heard, even without backing from the big labels. That makes Orrin Hatch a potentially serious foe for the record industry. But the labels don't have their hopes pinned on a Senate committee, much less a would-be elderly pop star from Utah. They are looking to the courts. From Wondery, I'm David Brown, and this is Business Wars. In our last episode of Napster vs. the Record Labels, the number of downloads on the file company's site exploded. 
Users were binging for fear the copyright infringement lawsuit will end this bonanza. And Napster finally snared a venture investment firm, unafraid of the pending lawsuit. But it's far from clear how Napster will weather the coming storm. This is Episode 5 of Fatal Email. New CEO Hank Berry knows better than to count on Congress to save Napster. He's fighting on two other fronts as well, but he only needs one of the three to succeed. The second front is the courts, where he has just hired one of the world's foremost litigators, David Boies, who won the U.S. Justice Department's landmark antitrust trial against Microsoft. But it's on the third front where Barry feels most comfortable, the negotiating table. As a lawyer, Barry did plenty of horse trading. As a venture capitalist, that is most of what he does. So, less than a week before the Senate hearing, Barry enlists his top partner at his venture firm, John Hummer. Because Hummer is not a Napster executive, it isn't as awkward for him to make an overture to the other side. Plus, he has a bit of fame that comes with being a former NBA basketball player. Hummer calls Edgar Bronfman, the CEO of Seagram Company, owner of the top record label, Universal Music. The Canadian heir only recently moved his family's beverage company into entertainment. And he's more of a wheeler dealer than an old-school media mogul. When Hummer asks if he would meet him in Barry before the showdown hearing for a preliminary injunction the following month, Bronfman says yes. Bronfman flies to California and meets Hummer and Barry inside the terminal of a small airport. I think you're going to lose in court. We've got you cold on the facts. The only reason I'm even willing to entertain a deal when we're so far ahead in the litigation is that if we keep fighting and you lose, something even worse than you might come next. Something without big-name investors and lawyers and responsible people like yourselves in charge. Barry nods and Bronfman continues. So, there's something in it for both of us. Right now is the time for a deal. Right now, before it all blows up in court. Bronfman says Napster has a great system for distribution. But there has to be a way for people to get paid. And that can't happen without charging per user, per song, or per month. Barry agrees with him, but says they need to move incrementally. If Napster suddenly starts charging, users will bolt and they'll take all the data about their tastes that the label could use with them. Barry and Hummer promise to return with a proposal they can discuss next week at the famous annual gathering of media moguls and dealmakers in Sun Valley, Idaho. When they meet there, Bronfman has brought along Sony's co-CEO, Nobuyuki Ide, and Thomas Middelhoff, the young CEO of Bertelsmann. Amid the soaring mountains and sun-dappled streams, they sit for a short chat over coffee at the luxury retreat. Barry starts off saying that Napster's prepared to offer the labels 60% of the company. Middlehoff perks up. Very glad to hear this, Hank. You keep talking with Edgar. He speaks for all of us. With that level of control, the labels could do what they wanted, including charging users. The relieved CEOs can see things going their way, whatever happens in court. But then, something strange happens. A week later, as the injunction hearing approaches, 
Hummer calls Bronfman and says, someone is offering to buy Napster for $2 billion. And then he adds, that's the new price. Barry hints that the rival bid is from AOL. Then Bronfman gets a call from Jerry Yang, founder of Yahoo. He, too, says Napster told him to ante up $2 billion to stay in the game. Bronfman smells a rat. He senses that Barry is overplaying his hand. I don't buy it. They're bluffing us both, Jerry. Bronfman reminds Yang that AOL is trying to buy Time Warner in the biggest takeover ever. Time Warner owns the Warner Records label. I mean, think about it, Jerry. Why would Warner Brothers sign off on a deal that would put them under the same umbrella as Napster? And to do this when the rest of us are suing Napster? Do you really think AOL and Time Warner would risk the whole merger? Both Bronfman and Yang walk. No more talk of valuations or deal-making. The decisive battle between Napster and the labels will come in the courtroom, where a well-prepared judge has no time for fools. It's high noon in the federal building in San Francisco. Judge Marilyn Hall Patel presiding. She will weigh the RIAA's motion for a preliminary injunction to shut Napster down ahead of the upcoming trial to settle the dispute. Like all such motions, it's an uphill battle for the party urging action because it calls for a drastic step before all the evidence is in. 200 journalists and spectators have been lining up for hours, but the 40-seat courtroom can't even hold all the lawyers for all the labels and the song publishers. Recording industry attorney Russ Frackman is confident his written brief is strong enough to sway the court on one of the two issues in play, that his side is likely to prevail on the legal issue at a later trial. So, his opening arguments are aimed at the other issue persuading the court that without an injunction to stop Napster, the labels will suffer irreparable harm. Since the judge walked in several minutes ago, 30, 40, maybe 50,000 recordings have been downloaded using the Napster system. Now, if we take the six months that Napster says it needs to prepare for trial, there will be 3.6 billion separate recordings downloaded using the Napster system. And 90% of those, Your Honor, are copyrighted. Now, the longer this goes on, the more impossible it will be for us, and we believe for the court to do anything realistic. When it's Napster's turn, David Boies rises and immediately deploys the argument that saved the VCR before the Supreme Court. Specifically, things that enable piracy are still permissible if they have substantial legitimate uses. But Patel has immersed herself in the evidence assembled by the record label lawyers and Napster. And in the mountains of material is one damning email from Parker to Sean. It reads, in part, Users will understand that they are improving their experience by providing information about their tastes without linking that information to a name or address or other sensitive data that might endanger them, especially since they are exchanging pirated music. There it is. Parker himself has described what they are doing as pirating music. 
the Napster team is ashen. And its attorney, David Boys, is about to get creamed. He rises to address the judge. We have at tab number two of the book that the court has a reference to a whole series of substantial non-infringing uses of which Napster is capable. And as the court is aware, the judge has little patience for Boy's approach. What does that mean, is capable? As opposed to is in fact or has in fact been performing? Later on, they say pirating be damned. I mean, piracy was uppermost in their mind. Am I not correct? Free music for the people, right? Parker's ill-chosen words are killing Napster before Hank Berry's own eyes. Patel interrupts boys five times. Toward the end, having tacitly conceded that the present-day Napster network is flooded with copyrighted material, boys reminds Patel that the VCR decision allowed home copying. But Patel isn't buying the parallel. They weren't sharing it with the whole world. Patel orders a half-hour break. When she returns and takes her seat, she shocks everyone in the courtroom by announcing a decision instead of reviewing all the arguments for weeks. All rise! Plenty of time has been expended in preparing for the motion. Certainly plenty of paper has been expended as well. The court is able to render a decision. Patel methodically moves through the undisputed facts and legal standards. She notes that most Napster users are violating copyrights, and then she shreds Napster's chief defense. She says that unlike the VCR makers, Napster stays aware of what its users are doing. I'm sure that anyone as clever as the people who wrote the software in this case are clever enough to come up with a program that will help identify infringing items. Patel turns to Frackman and asks when he would like the injunction to take effect. Frackman tries to think of a way to say immediately without sounding vindictive. He stalls by walking towards the bench. And as he does, Patel notices his glance at the wall. Now, Your Honor, right now. And you're looking at the clock, not the calendar. There are broad grins at the label's table. But Boys complains that Napster doesn't have a way to sort out unprotected material. Patel is a court low on patience and shoots back. What about all those substantial non-infringing uses you were trying to convince me of? She rules that the injunction will take effect two days later, Friday at midnight, and she denies Boy's request for a stay while he appeals to the Ninth Circuit. With the sound of the gavel, reporters sprint from the room, and Sean's eyes tear up as he stares down at his hands. The Napster crew dodges the media, then piles into a Lincoln town car and drives off. For the next two days, Napster employees are frozen in a daze. A Napster recruiter sends an email urging all of them to hang tight, even if the service shuts down, not to look for jobs elsewhere. In a webcast for fans, Sean pledges, We will keep fighting for Napster and your right to share music. In court, Frackman had argued that without an immediate shutdown, 
there would be an unprecedented rush by users to loot with abandon while they still could. And that's exactly what happens. In the two days before the ordered shutdown, the number of registered users soars to 22 million. On the search engine Lycos, Napster becomes the most sought word for the week, ending a 30-week run by the word Pokemon. Boys and his team frantically draft a long-shot emergency appeal to the Ninth Circuit to stay the injunction. Napster managers hop on a conference call to go over what compliance will mean when midnight strikes, the moment when Judge Patel's order goes into effect. As they are speaking, the order from the Circuit Appeals Court arrives. The three-member court will grant the stay while the judges consider legal issues raised by Napster. And that could take months. As Napster erupts in cheers, company director and former NBA center John Hummer strides through the office. This is like the playoffs. They won the first game and we won the second. It's going to seven and we're going to win it. On Monday, Barry sends an email to the troops thanking them for sticking it out through tough circumstances. Then, he drops a bombshell. Napster is trying to reach a settlement with the labels. The arrangement could include advertising, subscription, or a hybrid of the two. Napster's last-minute reprieve means that it will be in the spotlight for some time to come. And that changes things for the company and for those who have brought it this far. Sean has become a bona fide celebrity. He spends more time on media interviews and playing online games and less time coding. In September 2000, he introduces Britney Spears at the MTV Video Music Awards. He does it while wearing a Metallica t-shirt. Uh, she's already sold millions of albums and sold out auditoriums all over the world. Here to sing a song older than she is, it's Britney Spears. A month later, Sean graces the cover of Time magazine. But the original gang is breaking apart. Jordan Ritter quits later that month. Parker is adrift too, and devastated that his emails betrayed the company in court. He goes on a vacation to contemplate what he can do next at Napster. But when he returns, Barry makes clear he shouldn't be there at all. Parker resigns and remains tormented for months, though his experience will later help him guide a startup in its crucial early years, a little company called Facebook, which will make him a billionaire. Barry does go back to Bronfman, but in a move that perplexes the Canadian, Barry offers less than he did before Patel's ruling. Now, he only offers to sell 50% of Napster, not 60% in control. Bronfman is stunned. He suspects the hidden hand of Intel chair Andy Grove, a Silicon Valley legend who is sure that peer-to-peer technology is the future. Grove probably urged Hummer not to give up a majority stake, he thinks. Bronfman pushes back against Barry and Hummer. This doesn't make any sense. You're losing in court and yet you are offering less? But Hummer isn't budging. We have to stay in control. You want a way to tax every individual transfer, and it's not going to work. Hummer might have wrecked things even without Grove's help, 
Just as the talks were starting up again, a Fortune magazine story on Napster came out. One quote from Hummer leapt from the page. I am the record industry's worst nightmare. Bronfman is done. When he breaks the news to the other label bosses, most of them are disappointed. But they understand. They expect to win in court. But they also know that they've lost something. An opportunity to marry themselves to a new form of distribution before the pirates take over the world. For Middlehoff, the young CEO at Bertelsmann, that's the whole game. He believes the labels are missing the point of Napster. Distribution is going to be peer-to-peer, legally or otherwise. And the labels can either participate or get left behind. The towering, buttoned-down German has an appetite for risk, so he directs his e-commerce chief to secretly open a new back channel with Barry. On the next episode of Napster vs. the Labels, a Bertelsmann deal stuns the industry, the appeals court strikes, and a new player moves in for the kill. His name is Steve Jobs. From Wondery, this is Business Wars. We hope you enjoyed this episode, and we invite you to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. There's a link on the episode notes. All you have to do is tap or swipe over the cover art, and you'll see it. You'll also find some offers from our sponsors, and we hope you can support our show by supporting them. If you like what you've heard, we'd love it if you could give us a five-star rating and tell your friends how to subscribe, too. Another way to support us is to answer a short survey at wondery.com survey. And don't forget to tell us what business war stories you'd like to hear. Just a quick note about the conversations that you've been hearing. We can't know exactly what was said, but this dialogue is based on our best research. I'm your host, David Brown. Joseph Mann, the author of All the Rave, The Rise and Fall of Sean Fanning's Napster, wrote this story. Karen Lowe is our senior producer and editor. Jenny Lauer is our producer. Sound designed by Bay Area Sound. Our executive producer is Marshall Louie, created by Hernan Lopez for Wondering.